Beyond the Mic with Sean Dillon. We're joined on the Starline by New York Times best-selling author of Tom Clancy's Zero Hour and his own Matt Drake series. The latest is Forgotten War. Before we continue, we have to thank him again for his service for our country. And we'll tell you, he's a former Apache helicopter pilot, so he doesn't have to. It's author Don Bentley. Hey, Sean. Thanks for having me. Don, welcome back Beyond the Mic. You were deployed in Afghanistan as an Army Air Cavalry Troop Commander, where you were awarded the Air Medal with the V device for Valor, the Combat Action Badge, and the Bronze Star. Your book is dedicated to the 11 Marines, one sailor and one soldier, who gave their lives at Kabul's Abbey Gate. Quote, may we who remain prove worthy of your sacrifice, unquote. Don, do you feel worthy still? You know, I don't know that, uh, <laughs> I don't know that I ever feel worthy. It, it's funny when, uh, folks who haven't served in the military, I think with the best of intentions, oftentimes refer to us as heroes. And I'm like, you know, the, the heroes are the, the men and women that didn't come home. And I think I try and live every day thinking about, friends of mine who didn't didn't make it back and how I should live my life to to honor their sacrifice so I think that's something I think about every day in Forgotten War your character Matt Drake heads back to Afghanistan as it falls to the Taliban does this book help you excise some demons from your past yeah, absolutely. So Forgotten Wars is the fourth book in my Matt Drake series. When I came to the book, and my editor is a guy named Tom Colgan, who's fantastic. He's worked with everybody from Tom Clancy to Janet Ivanovich and, and everybody in between. And he said, you know, the difference between a good writer and a great writer is that a, gr- a great writer pushes themselves with every single book and tries to expand the envelope. And so when I came to Forgotten War, originally what my intention to do was to just write a story about Matt and, and his best friend who is in all of my books as well, a guy named Frodo, who's his bodyguard, and kind of how they met and showed that 10 years ago, show a mission that, that they were on together in Afghanistan 10 years ago. And then as I was getting ready to write this book, Afghanistan collapsed uh, during our withdrawal in 2021. And the, the messages and stuff that I kept getting from fellow veterans were all along the same line of, of, was this worth it? Was any of it worth it? If this is the way it ends, is any of the 20 years of blood, sweat, and tear and treasure lost, is any of that worth it? And so that came together and made the book something I certainly didn't set out to write. But I think also I like to tell folks the book is certainly fiction, but the conversations that I had with my fellow veterans certainly form that emotional backbone. And if nothing else, what I wanted to do is give people who didn't serve in Afghanistan a look or kind of a window into the mindset of the men and women who did. And so hopefully Forgotten War does that. The team consists of a gunship pilot, washed-up Green Beret, a DIA agent on vacation, I'll use the air quotes there, and an angry seal. You couldn't find a way of getting a Coastie involved? <laughs> you know, it's funny you mention that because one of my uh, very good friends and fellow writers is Bill Schweigert, who is also a Coastie. He graduated from the Coast Guard Academy, but I... You know, the reason I did that was because when you looked at what happened in Afghanistan during the withdrawal, you had, you know, what looked like from the outsider's perspective, a military that was handicapped from the perspective of they were just sitting in Kabul 
not going out and getting people, kind of holding that little line in the sand and little else. And then all of a sudden you had just this flood of civilians go over to Afghanistan with names like the Pineapple Express and things like that to go honor that commitment they made to their Afghan companions. And and I thought, you know, not since probably Dunkirk in World War II has a civilian population stepped up to do something that the military could or, or, or wouldn't do. And and I thought, man, and I've got to show that. And what better way to show that than through the eyes of kind of this motley crew who goes over to Afghanistan and does what the government can or won't do. And so I did try to honor all the different branches for sure, but I must have missed out the Coasties. And you try to give Air America a better name. <laughs> I did that too. I think, uh, you know, Air America has a bad connotation from the Vietnam War, certainly, but I think there were some, some pretty amazing things done during that couple month period and especially the last weeks leading up to it. I know Tim Kennedy is a, is a local Austin boy here as well. And he talks about it a little bit in his uh, biography called scars and stripes. And there've been a whole bunch of books written. And then I think more will come. And, and the more people talk about what happened during that time and what civilians did, most of them no longer in uniform. Uh, I think the stuff of legends will only grow. Don, how did you come up with Forgotten War as a title? Yes, the Forgotten War, as uh, some folks on social media have been keen to point out, is is traditionally reserved for the Korean War as kind of the war in between World War II and Vietnam, the Forgotten War. But from my perspective, you know, when I went to Afghanistan in 2005, and so even then, by 2005, Iraq had already kicked off, and Iraq had... Uh, for all, for better or worse, become our center of gravity and the focus of the military. And so I think it was Donald Rumsfeld was actually quoted as saying something along the lines of, we do what we must in Iraq, so in Afghanistan we do what we can. And so there became this sense of kind of entropy where units and commanding generals would rotate in and out without ever updating what is the overall strategic plan like what are we trying to accomplish here and you know i'm i'm a father my son was born shortly after september 11th and he's now in the middle of of getting his commission in the marine corps and i just remember thinking you know as a father i just found it abhorrent the thought that my son a generation later might have to go back to Afghanistan. And I thought, you know, for what? What What in the world are we even trying to accomplish there? And so I think very much over that 20 years, it kind of became the forgotten war. And if you look at it, this is a fascinating statistic. So it was an all-volunteer army that shouldered their nation's burdens, both in Iraq and Afghanistan for 20 years. And not only that, but only one quarter of 1%, less than one quarter of 1% of the U.S. population deployed to Afghanistan or Iraq. And in fact, that set many of them deployed both to Iraq and Afghanistan. And I just found it fascinating that this tiny fraction of America's sons and daughters shouldered that burden, oftentimes repeatedly for 20 years, and the nation kind of forgot about it. And and I and I don't think that's right. Best-selling author, our friend Don Bentley joins us beyond the mic for The Rocking Eight. Eight random questions. Answer with the first thing that comes to your mind, Don. There's no pressure. Favorite day trip from Austin, and you can't count Fredericksburg. <laughs> I was about to say Fredericksburg as soon as you were going to say that. 
Um, let's see. You know what? My wife is a huge uh, Chip and Joanna fan, and so if you are also in that cult, you cannot be in Austin and not make the trip up the Waco to see the silos. What's your favorite type of coffee roast? I uh, have a friend that I flew in Afghanistan with that uh, actually formed his own coffee company once he got out. It's called Mural City coffee company and he has a blend aptly titled the aviators blend and it is fantastic it's like a medium roast what's in it there's coffee beans in there sean i I don't know they're black you grind them up and coffee comes out that's all i can tell you (laughs) you can tell me but you have to kill me how do you decompress uh reading so i i don't get to read as much for pleasure anymore because um you know one of the things about being a writer is a lot of folks help you up on the on your way up and, and blurb your book and I try and do that for as many people as I can, but that often means I'm I'm reading stuff that I didn't pick out. And so when I can and and when I can read just just pure popcorn stuff, I love doing that. My my editor turned me on to this series uh by P. T. Duderman who writes about World War Two a whole bunch of books, but the ones I love are about the destroyers um, that were in the Pacific campaign, right as the Japanese were kind of perfecting their kamikaze tactics, and it's fascinating. Were you a Keith Urban fan before or after he was married to Nicole Kidman? And <laughs> what's your favorite song? <laughs> so my wife has always been a Keith Urban fan, and I was a reluctantly along for the ride. And then I, I got to – we had friends of mine. They, they filmed the Country Music Awards here down in Austin, and, and friends got us tickets. And I got to see him live, and he – you know, successful as he is, each of the artist came out and played one song and then left because they were taping it and Keith Urban there was a block of time and he said you know what I'm not done and his band walked up and he just started playing on his guitar just him and the crowd and played it just for the crowd so fantastic guy my favorite song for his and I can't remember what the title is but it's about a girl and the guy falling in love in the backseat of a cop car and it's it's pretty fantastic isn't that like most country songs <laughs> absolutely what's one thing you miss doing from when you were a kid man so we had a uh i grew up in the 80s when you know parents literally told you to leave the house and not come back on until the street lights were on and we, where I grew up, there was a woods behind our house that had creeks in it that we would um, go catch crawl dads and play hide and seek. And we built a tree house uh, one year, and in the grace of God, it it basically stood up. I think we only fell off a couple times, and I still wish I knew whether that tree house was standing because it. Uh, yeah, we went through the you know use the adage that. If you don't know, you know, there's this thing, if you don't know a knot, tie a lot, well, we use that with nails. So there are probably 8,000 nails uh, securing the boards to those poor trees. <laughs> the treehouse is probably still standing. The trees are probably all dead. Now, Don, if you could be invisible for one day, what would you do? Hmm, that's a good question. I think I'd probably try and hop a ride on... Uh, some airplane I'd never get to fly before. I got the current Clancy book I'm working on is called Weapons Grade, and I got really interested in hypersonics, and I got to spend two hours on the phone with a retired four-star Air Force general who flew the SR-71 and a whole bunch of different combat missions, and it was, I mean, it was fantastic. I had eight pages of notes by the end. The, The funniest part is this guy literally flew combat missions all over the place, and was telling these incredible stories, but could not for the life of him forget figure out how to work Zoom. And so I'm talking this SR-71, like, push the mouse down a little lower, go for that. And he's like, <laughs> us fighter pilots, we're not good with Zoom. And I'm like, I hear you, brother. 
<laughs> but I would love to be along with his passenger for one more flight. How about your favorite pair of boots? Uh, so I actually, my most comfortable um, pair that I've had for 10 years, just a pair of Ariats, told my wife when we went boot shopping, she wanted to try on a pair of Lucchese's. I'm like, be careful, because once you put those on, you will never be able to do any other pair of boots. But I actually have a friend who makes boots as his hobby, and he made me a pair um, with, without sanction came out, and they are incredible. So they're only going on five years old, so they're still new from a boots perspective, but they're pretty darn comfortable too. It's always good after you've broken in a new pair of boots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's the yeah. best place you vacationed with the family? The first 10 years of our marriage, we lived, I was in the military, and we we got to live overseas quite a bit. And when my wife and I were in Korea, we went on an R&R to Australia down in 2000. And so we were at Cairns right at the northeast corner. And so we got to go diving on the Great Barrier Reef and everything. And that was amazing. Uh, my last assignment, we lived in Germany and we traveled all through Europe and stuff. And I think my favorite, uh, one of my favorite places with the entire family was going to Ireland. That was that was pretty incredible. We did the whole ring of, of carrier, whatever it's called. And it was amazing. Now, did you kiss the Blarney Stone? We did, and then after I kissed it, the Irish guy there, he's like, you know, people pee off that stone. I'm like, a little bit of advanced warning would have been great. Thank you. <laughs> if you're enjoying these conversations, please check out another Beyond the Mic episode to find more actors, artists, and people you need to know. We'd also appreciate a like and subscribe on the Good Pods app. <laughs> it's time for the back half with our friend Don Bentley Beyond the Mic. His latest book is Forgotten War. Don, in one section of the book, Matt gives a vet his number and tells him, quote, when it gets bad, call me, unquote. Yeah. Who do you call when it gets bad? I'm lucky enough that once I got out of the, the Army, I worked uh, for corporate America for a while, and it was the hardest three years of my life for a number of different reasons, one of those being that when you're in the military – you don't realize how much of who you are is tied up in what you do. And you also don't realize how much you're understood by the community around you because everybody else has been through similar things. And so when you leave that community and go to your first civilian job, you're trying to figure out who you are and you're probably wrestling with some things that happened while you were on active duty. And there isn't anybody around who understands you and can talk to you about that. And so after that job, I went and, worked with a number of veterans who had started their own small business. And, and two of those guys are my best friends to this day. They're former uh, members of the Ranger Regiment. In fact, before I worked or went to writing full-time, I was working with them again. And those are the guys that I know any time of day I can call. I've taken calls from them and vice versa. And that's that's the biggest thing I said to veterans is, you know, obviously you're not alone, but the second part is you need to have somebody to talk to. Because when I was struggling to make sense of th- some things that went sideways in Afghanistan, the words um, that my wife spoke, that my civilian friends spoke were great, but they didn't mean anything until a veteran who had been in a similar situation told me that same thing. And it was you know, almost like he gave me absolution. He said it wasn't your fault. And that wasn't anything anybody else hadn't told me before, but it meant something coming from him. And so that's one of my biggest, biggest foot stompers, I guess, is you need to have somebody to be able to talk to. 
In what way did Kelsey Smith and Brian Price's friendship change the way you look at your time in the service? Yeah, so it, it's funny. Kelsey and, and BP were um, two of the troop commanders I was with in Afghanistan. And the Apache community is very small. And so we had actually served together before that as well. And it's it's funny, you know, in the military, you have very intense friendships anyway because everybody's coming and going. And so you have a lot of times very intense um, short duration friendships, but with with Kelsey and, and BP, as we called him, we were troop commanders together. And so it was our job to collectively execute the boss's vision. And we did that often by coordinating amongst ourselves as opposed to the boss. And it was, it was just this feeling that another brother had your back regardless of what happened. And, and during uh, one of my bad days in Afghanistan, I had to fly the very next day and I was, I was shaken up about it, but I knew it was the right thing to do. And I climbed in the cockpit and went and flew. And there are what they call these routes that crisscross Afghanistan, these aerial routes, right? And so I was, flying on one of them. Kelsey was flying on the other and I knew it was him. And he just called out my call sign and he's like, I see you. And then kept going. And it just, you know, something that small, but I knew that if stuff went sideways, that dude would move heaven and earth to come get me and would have my back. And it's, and it's relationships still to this day. Um, BP was the director of the counterterrorism center at West point. And I got to take my son up to West point to see him as he was there um, Kelsey is still one of my closest friends in our families, our wives, our friends, our kids grew up together. Part of that's the military. Um, part of that is that crucible that is combat that forces bonds. And then part of it is I was just lucky enough to have those two incredible guys be troop commanders with me. Don Bentley, author of Forgotten War, joins us beyond the mic. In your book, you say 800,000 American men and women volunteered in Afghanistan and they should be considered, quote, our nation's newest, greatest generation, unquote. Yeah. How has that war colored the way you see the world? You know, I think one of the best things about Americans is that we tend to view the world as a glass half full. And and what I mean is that standpoint is that we project our own values across the globe, which is good in that we assume the best of people but can be bad from the standpoint of just because I I think sometimes we forget how exceptional America is, that it was a nation founded on a set of ideals and by a a set of people who were willing to give all in service of their nation to found this great experiment that said our rights are not bestowed upon us by a government, but by the creator himself. And because of that, they're inalienable. And so I think – I think when we look at Afghanistan or maybe Iraq to some perspective, there was the notion that those people would also rise up and and aspire to their better angels and that we could, you know, for lack of a better term, export democracy. And and we weren't able to do that in Afghanistan. And I think it has taken a generation, my generation of folks perhaps, and had us look at the world in potentially a little jaded fashion. And I think one of the reasons why Ukraine has so resonated and the Ukrainian people has so resonated um, with America in particular, but I think the world in general is because frankly, it stands in stark contrast to the majority of Afghanistan's and Iraqis and that the people of Ukraine were willing to stand and fight in the people of Afghanistan, while some fought very valiantly as a people, they didn't have the same reaction to it. And, and I think I think that was a change to how I saw the world, certainly. 
Don, you've worked in corporate America before you started writing. How has your experiences from war to the FBI to SWAT, electronics, corporate America, to writing changed the way you see yourself? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things, one of the, the um, buddy I was talking about before, his name's Brandon Cates, was a, was a former Army Ranger. He was a platoon leader during Anaconda. His sister, platoon leader, Nate Self, was um, the, the, the Ranger QRF leader who responded when um, Chapman and, and Roberts were both in trouble on top of that mountain in Afghanistan. And he and I were talking about the difference um, leaving the military and then coming to corporate America and he started his his corporate journey at Dell Computers, and he said, "You know, nobody's going to die today." And and that's certainly true. That and it helps, I think, put in perspective what you're doing. But that doesn't minimize the important work I think you do in corporate America either. And and frankly, I think it makes it you look at it differently. I, I think as a veteran, a lot of times you're more driven by a sense of purpose than you are um, per, perhaps finances or quality of life or anything, you want to believe in your heart that what you're doing matters. And so it took me a while to figure out how that, what that looked like for me. And I was, after I left the FBI, I was able to work for a number of small companies that made tools uh, for folks in the special operations and the intelligence community. And the last company I worked for was called Amatrine and we made uniforms and hide sites that made people um, invisible and so I knew that if I did my job right, that American sons and daughters would come home. And if I didn't, they wouldn't. And so it, it gives you a different level of focus for sure. And I think, I think veterans have to find that sense of fulfillment. You know, I have a friend who works in corporate America as well, and he works for a company uh, that makes diapers. And diapers are important. Don't, I've got three kids. I understand how important they are. But I need personally a connection back to the warfighter and to think even though I'm not in the military anymore, I have friends who still are and I want to do something that can help them. And so for me, that's where it led me. But I think everybody who has been a veteran has to has to figure that out for themselves and say, if I don't find that kind of fulfillment in work, then maybe I find it through nonprofits or through my church or volunteering. But you're going to be very, very purpose-driven because when you're in the military, so much of who you are is wrapped up in that sense of nobility and what you do, and that's hard oftentimes to be to get replicated in corporate America. What's the best thing about your sons and daughters, and how has your wife kept you sane? So my wife and I are high school sweethearts, and so she has been around um, the entire time, and she's thoroughly unimpressed by what I do, which I think is very helpful. If asked, she will tell people that that I can't figure out what I want to be when I grow up, which is probably also true. Um, my son, like I said, has um, followed in my footsteps somewhat and that he's going into the military. And against everything I, I could do, he chose to go to the Marine Corps instead of the Army. But it's been incredibly fun to watch him find that path on his own and decide um, that he wants to pursue service over self. Um, my middle daughter, my oldest daughter, but my middle child is uh, in her first year in college is an engineer as well. And she wants to be a writer and there'll be days, you know, she's getting a degree in engineering, but she writes on the side and we compare word counts. And the other last weekend, she wrote 14,000 words in a day. And I'm like, I haven't written 14,000 words in two weeks. Can you send some of those words my way? And so that's been really neat to see through her eyes. Um, 
how she looks at the story and why she wants to become a writer. And my youngest daughter is a sophomore in high school and she is a gym rat. And so she cracks me up because I'll, I showed her kind of the, some of the basic lists and stuff I've learned. And then it's been fun watching her as she videos herself doing squats and tries to get her form exactly right for push presses and stuff. And so it's funny. I thought before I had kids or they were old enough, I thought there would be a kid potentially who is exactly like you or, or not at it all. But what you see is your kids are little facets of you, I think. And that's been neat to see. What's the best Nelson Neville novel? Man, that's a hard one. So the, the first one, I, I still think, well, I think the best John Corey one is still Plum Island because he's, he's such a funny character and he's so, he's so well-written. Charm School was an incredible one, too, because it was written during the heyday of the Cold War and that kind of that hypothesis that there's a little village in the middle of, you know, Siberia where it is, where it's where it's little America, where spies learn how to speak English and stuff is such a fascinating one, too. He was really, really kind with Forgotten War to blurb my book, and we actually exchanged emails back and forth. Nelson DeMille was an infantry platoon leader in Vietnam and was decorated and two other of his books, I know this is way beyond your question, um, were big influences on Forgotten War. And so he wrote one called Upcountry about a uh, CID officer who has to go back to North Vietnam, who served in Vietnam and has to go back to Vietnam to research something. And then there's another one, and I believe the title has something about honor in it, but it is about a Vietnam vet who a war crime occurred during his tour in Vietnam and he has to come back and testify um, about what happened then. And so both of those were, were big influences on forgotten war. Don, you've helped others via tips for beer at the bar at Thriller Fest. What's the one tip you've given that you wish someone gave you at the beginning of your career? And what's the one tip you gave your daughter, even though she owes you 14,000 words? (laughs) I think one of the hardest things to figure out is what's important and what's not from a publishing as a business perspective. So you get for so long, the the finish line just looks like, will somebody buy my book? And when they do that and they, and they publish it, you're super excited, which you should be. But then if you're fortunate enough, there becomes a transition to, Hey, maybe this is something I can actually do for a living to being a business. And there's so many different aspects of your career, whether it's, the marketing plan and how that's going, whether it's sales for a certain aspect, whether it's, you know, where you're getting blurbs or not, or how these things are are working or not. And I think it would, it'd be helpful to say, Hey, for your first book, here's what I'd worry about for your second book. Here's what I'd worry about. And maybe break that down a little bit further and into more granularity. Cause it's really, really hard when you're drinking from the fire hose and, and the writers I talk to have been very, very gracious with their time and with advice and stuff, but it becomes, I think really quickly, if you're fortunate enough to do this for more than one book or several books, it becomes very tactical. Like what do I need in order to make this book be better than the rest? And that answer changes. I think every time another book of yours comes out. And then for my daughter, I think, I wrote three books that didn't sell uh, over a period of 17 years. And the 17 years is not because I had writer's block. It's because there's a certain amount of sulking that needs to happen in between each book that didn't sell. And so she's been working on this book for a long time and she's almost done. And I think what I would tell her is finish the book, 
edit the book, send it out, and then start writing the next book. Because chances are that's not going to be the book that sells. It's going to take you a while to learn your craft. And the quicker you can compress that time by just going on to the next book and going on to the next book, the quicker you'll be a published writer and hopefully somebody that can do this for a living. You support authors via social media and at conferences, giving, receiving blurbs. Why is giving back so important to you? Yeah, so so one of the benefits of being an overnight success that took 17 years to be an overnight success is that I was on Twitter and and mostly Twitter, but on social media long before I had a book to sell. And I was on there because I really like books and I really love writers and I'm genuinely a fan first. And so because of that, I went out of my way as a fan because again, I didn't have anything to shill at that point to, to promote writers and to promote writers I liked and to try and engage with them. And so then when it came my turn, there were there was a line of people who were willing to help me, who were willing to help me with blurbs, who were willing to help promote my book. And I think, you know, when I if if for what it's worth, if, if I could say something to new writers come up coming up, I would look at your posts and your social media stuff and try and make it 75 percent or 80 percent about everybody else and 20 percent about you. And if you do that and if you're genuine with it. People will recognize that, and when it's your turn, people will go out of their way to try and help you, and that's certainly been my experience. What's your best memory from Thriller Fest or BoucherCon? Um, so BoucherCon, the uh, the first one I went to was right before my debut without sanction came out, and so the the publisher had arranged for a signing where we gave away a bunch of books and stuff, and it was the first time I saw my book like in a in like in a, a published version and and I could you know sign it and do all the stuff that authors did and it it just was really incredible. Thriller Fest is amazing for a lot of different reasons. Like I said, the the classes and stuff that they teach there are incredible. You they aren't just taught by academics, they're taught by writers who are actually making a living doing what you want to do. And they have some pretty incredible guests. And one of the times Anne Rice was the guest of honor and her son Christopher interviewed her and it was fantastic and funny and she just seemed like a delightful lady and I left the event went and did something got on the elevator and it opened and I walked in and she's little and it was Ann Rice and I almost knocked her over and I walked back and I'm like you're Ann Rice and she said yes I am and then I just got back off the elevator so (laughs) that was a good event for me I don't know if it was a good for her but she was kind, and, and like most of the people at Thriller Fest, they're kind. One of your first jobs was designing a microprocessor controller for frequency agile radios. Ever think of falling back on that if this writing thing falls apart? Uh, probably not. I don't know that I was a fantastic engineer. I think I was an okay one. Um, but I would, I still keep in touch with the, I mentioned before working for that company, Amitrine, and I still keep in touch with the folks who work there and what I miss most about it. I miss working with my friends, but I miss going and seeing customers. Cause uh, you know, when without sanction came out, my first book, I was doing a radio interview and the interviewer, you know, it was like, she was going to pin me to the wall and she said, are you Matt Drake? Who's my protagonist. And I said, you know, I am absolutely not, but I've stood in the same room with men who could be. And that's true. And every time I went and saw customers, it was like, just kind of a tape playing in my mind as I'd listen to the stories they told or see how they looked at the world or whatever. And it's, they're an incredible group of men and in some cases women. And it was um, my pleasure to 
number one, to um, bring them stuff that we're going to save their lives and make their jobs better. And then the second part is kind of provide that window into their, to their lives um, because most people aren't, aren't privileged enough to know somebody from the special operations community for sure. Don, with all the clearances you used to have, how hard is it keeping yourself from accidentally using stories from your own life in the books? <laughs> yeah, it's funny when I go back to um, being with customers is that there are a lot of, with their permission, there are a lot of folks I've either served with or folks who were customers that I use as, as names in my books. And sometimes it'll be a, a first name and a last name combined. But what I'll do a lot of times just to make them mad and because I'm the author and I can is if they were an army ranger, I make them a seal like my friend Brandon Cates. And if they were a seal, I make them a green beret and just to kind of stick that knife in a little bit. Oh, but, um, that's your, mean. Yes. It's, it's so much fun. And they, uh, they don't like it, but there's nothing they can do about it. And so I get to do that. And then also, but to your question, as a former FBI agent, if there's anything in my books um, that I've written about that could potentially be FBI information, then the FBI has to review the book first and then come back with any uh, any any changes or any redactions or stuff like that. And so I go through that process with most of my books. Best and worst part from your time as an FBI special agent? Um, so I my first job as an FBI agent was as a uh, a human agent, and it's and it is very close to what my protagonist Matt Drake does in his books, except for he works for the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, and he's what's called a case officer, which is a fancy word for being a spy. And so his job is to go overseas and run and recruit um, in the intelligence community what they call assets, and the FBI what we called sources. And that was a great gig. I loved doing that. And I think my pinnacle in that in that particular job is I had a source um, who called me up one point and said, hey, this is going to happen tomorrow. Here's how I know. And I went through the thing, vetted it, figured out it was right. And we got to call people on the other side of the world and wake them up and say, hey, this is what we've got. This is going to happen. And the next morning when I woke up, it was on Fox News and it actually happened. And so that was a very fulfilling thing. This is why I'm being an FBI agent. Um, the not so fun part is that once I got done being a human agent, I moved over to an investigative squad, um, which is good. That's what you come to the FBI to do. But I got moved to a, a white collar criminal squad um, doing public corruption. And so I went from doing uh, feeling like I was in a Tom Clancy book to sitting in a cubicle and analyzing 13,000 emails. And it, it was not, not so much fun for sure. Author Don Bentley, his book forgotten war joins us beyond the mic. Don, how many times have you had to visit the team room? Many, many times. And so the, um, the team room for, as my customers talk about it is, is that room where the Green Berets get to gather and plan missions and decompress and look at technology. And so in my, as a business um, guy, most of our meetings took place in the team room. And so it was, it was always fun. The culture there is different. Um, the customers are very relaxed and they're very, very smart customers and you get one chance. And so it's not like if you're taking a piece of technology to an army private who's 18 or 19 years old and telling them how to use it. When you come in with this kind of customer, they're all independently minded. They're screened for that. They're great critical thinkers. They know what their problems are. And so you get one chance to show them the piece of technology. It better work. 
and then they're going to take it and see how they actually want to use it, which may or may not have anything to do with how you've actually designed it to work. And so if you get, if you get that invitation to actually go to the field with them, it's even better because you can see how they employ it, but it's also the most terrifying thing in the world. One of my last gigs is we were with some customers on the West Coast, and we were out in the field with them, and there was an Apache circling overhead, and I'm talking to the Apache. Actually, I'm I'm talking to the communications NCO who's talking to the Apache, and then finally he just hands me the radio, and he says, you talk to him. And so I talked the Apache in on doing a gun run into a a product of ours, and I'm waiting to hear if he can see it. And he says the magic words, where is it? So I'm like, take the cover off, and he does. And he's like, there it is. And so that's great when it works well, but it's also, like I said, they're a demanding customer. They don't have time for nonsense, and you get one chance. And so it's a fantastic customer set, but it's also really intimidating, and I always – Counted it a privilege at any time I got invited to the team room. So who is D Moss model after? <laughs> She's uh so uh, in addition to the customers, I actually also put in um, friends and, and friends um, wives. And so she is a very good friend of the family and she married a guy who had four brothers. And so her name is D they gave her no uh, small amount of crap as being the first um, sister-in-law into the into the family. And so one of the things they did is started calling her D-Bone because her name was D. And I thought that was hysterical when I knew her. And so I'd call her D-Bone. And so I asked her, I was like, hey, can I put you in this book? Because I need this hot shot pilot. And a lot of D wasn't a, a, a pilot, but a lot of her qualities, a lot of the characters' qualities are in the book. And I may have neglected to mention that I was going to call her D-Bone as her call sign. So hopefully she thinks that's okay when she gets the book. But there are there were a lot of hot shot women pilots I had the pleasure of flying with. There's one, I don't think that she'll mind if I say her name because she's out of the military now, but she was Kelsey's, one of Kelsey's instructor pilots. Her name's Jen Wellington. She's actually a surgeon now. Um, she's not, you know, flying an Apache wasn't good enough for Jen. She's now a surgeon. And she was, um, during the initial invasion in Iraq, she was one of the killer crews that went and got stuff done and uh, also made me a better pilot and made a lot of us better pilots. And so I wanted to have a, you know, a, a female pilot that was kind of like Jen and, and those that I got to fly with, but also it had to be D-Bone. Best-selling novelist, and she's showing you up even today. <laughs> Absolutely. Last time we talked, Russia had invaded Ukraine. Quote, the world needs hard men. Without the likes of you, evil would triumph, unquote. You said it. But is there enough to keep evil from triumph? I think so. I think, you know, what impressed me about about the generation after September 11th is they all knew they were going to war, every single one of them. I remember seeing kids going through ROTC in college. There wasn't any doubt. They knew that they were going to war in Iraq or Afghanistan, and they still raised their right hand and swore to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And I look... You know, I see my own son, like I said, who's pursuing a career in the Marine Corps. And I was, as a dad, I'm very proud by that, but I was also very cautious that I didn't want it to be something that was inspected of him or something that because of my influence he was doing. And so I had sat him down and had a really, really heart-to-heart talk. And I said, you know, as an officer in the Marine Corps or any any military service, American parents are entrusting you with their sons and daughters. 
And you don't get that right now. You will someday. And, and God forbid you might someday re- make that realization in combat as you are, you know, the nation is placing their, their biggest treasure into your hands and say, here's my son or my daughter, lead them well. And it is, it is the highest of honor and the most terrifying responsibility all at the same time. And so I think, when I look out and see that there are still hard men and hard women who are willing to raise their right hand, who volunteer to serve, and who volunteer to serve knowing that the last 20 years has been one of combat, and there's no reason to think that the next 20 years will be one of peace, and, and that gives me great hope for our democracy. Don, what's the biggest impact you've made by writing? I think I've, I've been able to tell some stories or tell variations of stories that haven't been heard before. You know, when... Without sanction, I think part of the reason why that book is the one that sold when three books before didn't was because I was finally willing to put some of the things that I struggled with in that book, you know, things that had when when something goes wrong in a life or death um, moment and you are the one who has to live with that, how, how do you do that? How do you find significance in your life? How do you... How do you, when that moment in time goes sideways, how do you ever live with yourself after that? And that is something that Matt Drake had to figure out. And that's something that a lot of friends of mine had to figure out. And so I think, I think what, what readers resonate with in a story is veracity and that even if it's fiction, it's a good story. First and foremost, forgotten war, hopefully first and foremost is a good story, but I hope that the veracity that's woven in there just resonates with people. And maybe they have a conversation with somebody that's a veteran and said, hey, I read this book about the fall of Afghanistan. You were in Afghanistan. What do you think about that? And I think if that happens, that would be a great thing. Don Bentley's wife thinks he needs to grow up. Built a treehouse that stands the test of time, loves Ireland, and a good aviator's roast. Forgotten War is the book. Where can people find you, Don? They can find me on my website at donbentleybooks.com, just B-E-N-T-L-E-Y books.com. You can sign up for my newsletter and and hear everything um, that I'm working on. And you can also find me on social media at at BentleyDonB, just B-E-N-T-L-E-Y-D-O-N-B, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Don Bentley, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. And that, my friends, is Beyond the Mic.